0: Like Justin said, we have the privilege of hearing from one of our elders tonight, Larry Locke. Super excited. Um, And if you are not familiar with kind of how we do things, if it's your first time, um, Larry will teach some and then present a question for us to talk about at our tables and then do that again. And then we'll end our time together with a little bit of response time and receive communion together. So, Larry? Take it away. See that the union gets upset when you do work that's not assigned to you? Yeah, right. So good evening everyone, my name's Larry Locke, I not know that we've all met, if not that's okay. Um, I teach business at UMHB and sometimes do things here. I'm really, really pleased to get to join you tonight. This is one of my favourite, um, favourite meetings, one of my favourite groups. There's just such a cool vibe about what you guys do here and, and frankly... Um, this is sort of one of the most, one of the ministries for which the need is most acute, right? I mean the number of young men and women who sort of abandon the church, the number of young men and women who abandon their faith is just really heartbreaking. And so I'm so thankful for this ministry and I'm very thankful for Mrs. Flieger and all of you who bring this group together every month. I know she doesn't do it quite all by herself, Um, So may the Lord just bless you in your ministry. This is a very cool thing that you do. Tonight I was hoping that we could examine a scene from the life of Christ. It's a story with which I suspect many of you will be familiar, but it has some applications that might be a little new for us. It's recorded in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, We'll start with the Matthew version, but then maybe look at, you know, the others just for a little bit of contrast uh, from time to time. So our text is going to be uh, Matthew 18, one to 4. I think we should just start with that, yeah? And let's, uh, let's just, uh, first thing we'll do is we'll get the, you know, we'll get the Scripture on the table. And that way, if we do nothing else, then the Word of God will have gone forth, right? And it will not return void, thanks be to God, right? Can I get someone in the room to read for us? Anybody want to take that on? you got a big big voice, fill the room. You can share my microphone. I won't tell the union steward. At that time, the came. I need my Go, man. Time. Can you, can you, wait, can you hear him in the back? Yes. Go, man. Greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What do you think? Pretty good, right? Yeah, come on. I love that virtuous voluntarism. That's great. So first things first, we better get the context of this story, right? The great Bible teacher Kay Arthur was famous for saying that the rule of context is that context rules. Right. So this conversation takes place in Capernaum. It's a town on the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, And right before this conversation, Jesus has been leading his disciples sort of through the backcountry, right? You know, wherever Jesus goes in the Galilee, all these huge crowds appear, right? So he's been leading them off into the wilderness in order to avoid those crowds. And that's because he has some things to teach them that are just for them, right? In particular, he's trying to explain to them how he's going to die and that it's going to be very soon. So this is pretty heavy stuff, right? It's like, all right, boys, gather around. I got something to tell you. You know, it's that kind of conversation. So it's a pretty sad indictment of the disciples that they choose this moment to argue about who of them is the greatest, right? Although if you read the Gospels, it sort of seems like like, that's all they talk about. But here they are doing it again when he's trying to explain to them how he's going to die. In the Matthew text that we read, uh, um, it, it says that Jesus, uh, they asked Jesus who's the greatest. In the Mark version, he asked them, he asked them, hey, what were you guys arguing about while we were walking down the road and they were embarrassed to tell him, right? Which I totally get, I totally get that. But however it comes up, Jesus responds by taking this little child who just happened to be there and some of the, some of the versions of this story will say that he held the child, so it must have been quite small, Right, I mean, we're not talking about a teenager. He, he holds the child, and but then Matthew makes the point that he sets the child down in the middle of all the disciples. Right, and so like any good teacher, Jesus loves a visual aid, and he sets the child down in the middle of the disciples. You get the picture, and he says, "If you want to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven, you got to be like this little guy." Right? So just for starters, if you've never heard that before, that had to completely turn everything that they thought about greatness upside down, wouldn't it? I mean, that just wouldn't comport with their concept of greatness. So, I mean, just to give us a minute, and uh, I'll break you up into groups here in a minute, but even before that, I want to just maybe take a few ideas from the floor. Thinking back about what it would have been like to have been one of the disciples in the first century— right? They didn't have LeBron James. You know, who did they think was great, right? So thinking back, if you were one of the disciples in the first century, who do you think you would have described as great? So just shout it out. Who do you think you would have thought was great? Uh, David? King David, right? He's, he's the, probably the most powerful king. He's the one who solidified the nation, brought it all together. King David was great, right? Who else would you have described as great? Sorry? Moses was great, right? Any, any current figures that you would have described as great? Caesar. Who? Yeah, Caesar. C- Caesar was great, right? He controls the known world. He must be, must be pretty great, right? Well, that's a measure of greatness, isn't it? If you've got sort of immense political and economic power, military power, that, that'll make you great, right, by our common definition of great. Who else would they have thought was great? John the Baptist, yeah, in a spiritual sense, they would have thought John the Baptist was a great prophet. I think he's dead by now, so it's not as attractive, but yeah, yeah, um, uh, but good, yeah, good thinking. Um, maybe, uh, maybe uh, uh, the the Herods, right? You know, the King Herod that tried to kill baby Jesus is, is dead now. He was called Herod the Great, right? That, somebody thought he was great. Um, he rebuilt the entire country, right? He, he. Built the city of Sebastian, Samaria. He built a new capital uh, down on the Mediterranean coast called it Caesarea Martina. He um, rebuilt Jerusalem, built a new temple, right? I mean, if you rebuild the entire country, wouldn't that sort of qualify you as great? Right? No wonder he was Herod the Great, right? He's, he's dead and Herod Agrippa, it takes. A, it's complicated. But what about the high priests? Would you have thought of them as great? I mean, they had a special relationship with God, right? That's pretty great. They were very rich. I mean, that doesn't hurt. I mean, do we sometimes think of rich people as? I mean, might that qualify you as great, right? If you're if you're like really rich, and they were from a small family, right? Caiaphas was the high priest when, uh, when uh, Jesus is uh, doing his ministry. But his father-in-law, Annas, had been the high priest before that. So it's a very prestigious family, right? So. Yeah, you know, might have thought of them as great. And so using this little child as the model for greatness has got to be like a completely new concept, right? This is not what they were thinking. This is not what anybody would have been thinking when you wanted to ask, well, who's great? Hmm? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Jesus does more, though, than just establish this new measure of greatness, being like a child. He goes on to say that unless you convert your language, uh, your translation says some translations, English translations, of this text will say, unless you change, right? Take whichever one works for you. Unless you change, unless you convert and become like a little child, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow, this just got a lot more serious, right? Now this isn't just about who's going to be the greatest. This is about who's going to get in at all. Right. This is no longer about how do you win the discipleship game. This is about how you qualify to play. Right. This idea that you got to be like a child suddenly it gets you know it gets much more much more important. There's a lot hanging on it now. But for all of its importance, this whole idea of of sort of being like a child. What does that mean? Well, well what does that mean? I'm supposed to do or be? Yeah. So I thought we'd better unpack that tonight, and I'm hoping that you'll help. So I'm about to sort of um, send you off into one of those um, sort of crazy discussions. But here's what, I, here's what I want to know from you. When we think of children, we accept that they have some common attributes, all right? and those attributes make them different from adults. There's a reason why it says children and not adults, perhaps. So what are children like? Right, yeah. can be. I heard annoying, can be, right? Um, but let's just compare them to adults. So take five minutes and discuss these. I'd like to get sort of the next three sentences up together. Can we do that? There you go. So adults, let's see about completing these sentences. Adults work, but children blank. Adults are cautious about trusting other people, but children are blank. Adults are cynical, but children are blank. Right, take five minutes and, and, well, maybe two minutes. Take two minutes, right? We'll put the pressure on you, and then I'll ask you to report out. Right, hit me. What do you got? What do you got for me? Adults work, but children play? Yeah, live a real life, right? Ah, children play, children. Experience life; it, it's sort of at a different level than we do, right? They they do life differently than we do it. We work; they play. That's the sort of the easy opening one. How about um, children are children are are cautious about trusting other people. I'm sorry, adults are cautious about trusting other people, but children do what? Love. love. They love other people. Oh, I like that. What else? I'm I'm, I'm reaching for the back because I, I want. They're naive about dealing with other people, right? You know, sometimes they'll, they can trust people like the wrong people, right? Yeah, quite right. Uh, others, what about, what about uh, um, children are cynical? I'm sorry, adults are cynical, but children optimistic. optimistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Children have a lot of hope about the future, right? I mean, isn't that, is that fair? Is that how you sort of encounter children sometimes? Yeah. Yeah, 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 that's all good. But it turns out that there are sort of two problems with how we understand children that can make us misunderstand what Jesus is commanding us to do here. Because it turns out we're quite wrong about this. Although all of your answers were, were quite appropriate. The first is that we tend to apply this romanticized view of children, right? We picture children as sweet and innocent and trusting and playful and they sort of stare up at you angelically, right? And and we know that children aren't really like that. Right? Kids aren't like that, really. I mean I'm I'm sorry to burst your bubble, Fleeger, but they're not like that. Right? They're just they're just not, right? We say children don't work, they play, but they take their play more seriously than a lot of adults do their work, all right? One of my grandchildren is two years old. If she spends the day at my house, she will be busy all day long. She's got this little toy kitchen that she's got to do a lot of cooking in, and then she's got to take her baby dolls and get them fed, and then they get strapped into this little stroller and run all over the house, and Batman needs to go on picnics, right? And and there's all this stuff that has to happen. And, and if Batman won't sit up in front of his cup, there will be a few minutes of sort of frustrated whining and then all out tears. And if he's not careful, Batman will get thrown across the room. That's just what's going to happen. Right? So children, yeah, yeah, they play, but what does their play really look like to us? Children trust people, sure. They trust people, you know, when they have to. They trust people like when they're lost in a shop. My wife will sometimes find little children, uh, I don't know how they find her, I think, but she'll find one, you know, in Target or in in the mall or something, and and they're lost and they're separated, and they're sort of standing around looking frantically, and, and she'll get down one knee and says, ah, you know, hey little buddy, where's your mama? And they'll say, I don't know, and then they'll start crying, and she'll look around and around and around and try and find somebody, but there's nobody there, she will eventually give that child her hand and lead her to the nearest employee, right? That's just what's going to happen. And they they willingly submit to this, right? They'll, you know, they'll follow, Uh, they'll trust her when when they're sort of presented with no other opportunity other than sort of being alone forever as far as they're concerned. But you present children with a food they don't want to try or a game they don't want to play and see how much trust you get, right? I have stood on the side of a swimming pool for hours trying to convince my son that he should jump in it. I told him, I told him that it was going to be great. I told him about all the amazing things he could do once he learned how to swim. Buddy, you could learn how to go scuba diving, you can play in the ocean, you can jump off diving boards. You trust me, it's going to be. I told him that I was a certified lifeguard and would never let anything happen to him, which is true, by the way. I told him all this stuff to try and get it, and he never jumped. Okay? Never. Children are often filled with wonder, and they're filled with hope about what the future would look. And it's easy to surprise them because they haven't seen that, you know, so much of the world. But they are famously selfish, right? They're famously rude. They're famously violent. My little granddaughter came home from daycare last week with a bite mark the size of an apple on her arm. And I'm just aghast at this. And I asked my daughter, oh, my gosh, what happened to my poor sweet baby? And she says, oh, you know, one of her little friends at daycare her." And I'm asking, well, is her friend a German shepherd? Because it's huge, this bite that she's got. And I'm thinking, oh, who do we sue? You know, we got to get out of this place, you know. How are we going to shut down this daycare? But my my daughter was just completely nonplussed about it. And she said, yeah, I think she gives as good as she gets. And that was the day. That was the day that I learned that my sweet, precious granddaughter, my own flesh and blood, was gnawing on other people's flesh and blood. That's when I found out about it. we got to face this, Right? We have this romanticized notion of children. And maybe that's okay for us, right? But let's assume that Jesus didn't, right? Let's assume that Jesus had a very realistic view of what children were all about. And when he said, let the little children come unto me in Luke 18, he wasn't referring to idealized children. He meant for real children to come to him, not family portrait children. And when Jesus says that you have to become like little children to enter the kingdom, again, he isn't referring to some romantic notion of children. He's not saying you have to be sweet little Cindy Lou Who, right, with a sweet disposition and perfect dimples. That's not what he's telling us to do. So what are the attributes of children that Jesus is commanding us to adopt? And this brings up our second sort of false assumption about this text. We tend to read it with a modern view of what children are and what they're all about. When we read Jesus saying, become like a little child, we think about it the way children are understood today, not the way they were understood in the ancient world. So this takes us back to the very trustworthy approach of biblical exegesis to say, well, think about what the first hearers of this sermon thought. Right? How would they have received it? And let that inform how we receive it. We did that with greatness. Now let's do it with children. So, what would the disciples have understood Jesus to be saying when he says, You need to come to me like little children? Now, ideas of children in the ancient world had a lot in common with how we think of children today, right? Parents love their children in the ancient world. But their role in the family and in the community was very different in the ancient world than it is now, in at least two important ways. Modern parents tend to see their children as an object of affection. right? And we delight in them and we provide for them, often well into adulthood. My children are all grown and married. I assume my children are all older than all of you. But two out of three of them are still on my cell phone plan. right? And how about this? I have no intention of kicking them off, right? Yeah, it's just, um, and I don't think I'm overly indulgent. It's just one of the simple ways that I try to show them that I love them. And modern parents can be like that, right? We can tend to financially support children well into adulthood, right? If you, if you remember when Obamacare was first enacted in law, it allowed parents to keep their children on their, on their health plan until they were 26 years old. Right, I mean, I'm guessing half of you aren't 26 years old, right? You know, that's uh, th- this idea that children um, that par- that that economic benefits will continue to flow from parents to children as they age is very much a modern mindset. It's not shared by everyone, you know, and I don't want to give the impression that that it were that it is, but um, but it's uh, it's very commonly accepted, and at the same time. Modern parents expect their children, again, generally, to make their own independent lives, right? We expect our kids to move out when they go to college and maybe never come back, right? I mean, is that anybody here's story? I mean, it's a pretty common story, right? Um, I know that when I talk to college students... That's what they're expecting. If after they graduate, they tell me they're going to move back home, they're a little embarrassed about it, right? Like that's not what they expected. They expected to have their own place and, and make their own decisions and sort of live, live quite independently. So, yeah, it's a, uh, it's, a, it's a different mindset in the sense that not only um, do we expect these financial benefits to flow, at the same time we expect uh, children to become sort of increasingly distant from their parents. And that's sort of how we think of it in, in postmodern America. Right? And neither of those assumptions would have held in the ancient world. Right? They would have not have thought either of those things. First of all, you're in a predominantly agricultural economy, right? So as children aged into adulthood, they just stayed, right? They stayed right, they remained part of the family unit. The ancient custom was for when a young man got married he just built a room onto his father's house where he and his you know his wife would start their own family but they continued to work the land side by side right that was what their expectations were quite different from many of you I suspect you see the really strong counterexample in the uh, in the story of the prodigal son right in Luke 15 what does the prodigal son do that's so evil he sells off half the family fortune and what does he do? He moves away, right? He moves off to a foreign country. You don't do that. That was not what was expected of him. Also in the ancient world, the generational contract between parents and children was much, much stronger than it was now. The economics didn't flow one direction. They flowed in both directions. So you see parents investing heavily in their children, But then as their children become adults and as those parents age, we see the economic benefits flowing back in the other direction. We see a lot of uh, references in the Old Testament to how women in the ancient world drew their value from childbearing. You remember this, right? You look at the book of Genesis and you read about Sarah's sort of pain at not being able to have children and and Rachel and Leah being in conflict with one another about who's having children and who's not. its very central to the identity of women in the ancient world that they were bearing children. And remember that this is a society in which there's no sort of social welfare system. Right? So what happens as women get older? Women who had children could look forward to sort of growing old surrounded by those children and all their grandchildren where they'd be cared for and loved and, you know, and, and, uh, and looked after as they grew older. Women who died in that day and age without children, or sorry, women who never had children, were much more likely to die alone and in extreme poverty. Right? So no wonder having, having children um, was very much part of the economic equation of how people's lives were going to work, particularly how women's lives were going to work. Yeah. So to be a child in the ancient world meant to receive a lot of love and a lot of care, but it was also to inherit a huge responsibility, right? The future of the family, the future of the tribe, the future of the nation is going to depend on you. And you know that, right? From the very beginning, that's just what it's going to be like. There's also a much stronger identification between parents and children in the ancient world than, than we would say today. Um, children were thought to sort of carry the essence of their parents. To be the child was to almost be the same as the parent. To be the son of Larry was to be Larry in some very important sense. Right? There's a very strong identification. That's why when Jesus says he's the son of God, the Jews lost their minds Right? because him saying he's the son of God is paramount to him saying that he is God, right? which they would have seen as very blasphemous. Well, that's just an extension of how parents and children were thought of generally, right? that if your parents and children are very much one and the same. So given this ancient understanding of children, what was Jesus telling his disciples about how to enter the kingdom of heaven? First of all, when you come into the kingdom of heaven, you have to come as a member of the family, right? In your verse 3, it says you have to convert. Again, sometimes it'll say, something. of those translations will say change, right? But you have to join the family if you're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven, right? You have to give up allegiance to any other family to the world and any of its institutions that you love so dearly. you got to let go of that if you're going to join the family of God. And you can't enter the kingdom unless you're a member of the family. You'll notice um, when you're reading the Gospels that Jesus never actually compares children to adults. Never does that like we did. He never does it that way. Right? There's a very strong identification between children and adults. They would have thought of them as the same. When he compares children, he compares them to foreigners. Just a few verses back, if we backed up from 18 verse 1 into the very end of chapter 17, we'd read the story of how Peter is approached by the temple tax collector and says, hey, does your master pay the two drachma temple tax? Peter says, yeah, of course. And then he asked Jesus, hey, is it right for us to pay the the two drachma temple tax. And Jesus asked Peter, well, Peter, from whom do kings collect taxes? Do they collect them from their own sons or from strangers? And Peter says, well, strangers, of course. And Jesus says, well, then the sons are exempt. But then he tells him, you'll remember, you know, fantastical stories. He says, okay, but you go fishing, first fish you catch, um, look in his mouth, it'll have a four drachma coin. Who even knew there was a four drachma coin? There's a four drachma coin. You take it to the guys collecting the tax and tell them that it's for you and for me, right? So that we can sort of stay on sides with those guys. But don't let the, you know, the crazy fishing story, or the miraculous fishing story distract you from what Jesus is saying about parents and children. The critical distinction for membership in the kingdom is not that you are a child or an adult. It's are you a member of this family? The king's sons don't pay taxes, right? If you want to be part of the kingdom and get to enjoy all the benefits, you have to become part of God's family. We see the same thing in Matthew 15. You see the story of the Canaanite woman, and she asked Jesus to deliver her daughter from demon possession. And Jesus says, and it's a hard saying, right? But he he says more or less, hey, I see you and I hear you. He said, but I was called to the people of Israel. I was called to, to God's chosen family. And then he says, it's not right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. Right? In our mindset, we might find that offensive. What he's really saying is, it's not right for me to take the bread from this family. It's not a speciesism. It's not right to take children, to take the bread from this family and give it to foreigners. All right? That's what he's saying. Now, if you remember the text in Matthew 15, he does actually heal the, the woman's daughter and, and delivers her from the possession He takes care of her. It's fine. Right? But the distinction, the reason he doesn't run off to do it straight away is not because she's a child. It's because she's a foreigner. Right? She's not part of the family. Yeah. So the disciples would have understood that if you want to enter the kingdom of God... As little children was not about being childish. It was not about being even childlike. It was about belonging to the family of God. You have to be identified with him. You have to accept all the rights and responsibilities that come with being a family member. Now the second thing that the disciples would have taken from this saying that you have to enter the kingdom as a child is that they would have known it to mean that you have to enter assuming the role of a child in the family. And that would have directly addressed, right, their argument about, you know, who was going to be the greatest, right? Because in the ancient world, children were loved and children were cared for, but children weren't great, right? That wasn't wasn't part of the deal. Children were completely subordinated to their parents, completely subordinated to them in authority, completely subordinated to them in status, yeah? The law in Deuteronomy 21 says... That if a mom and dad have a child who's rebellious, they can take him to the village, uh, to the men of the village, and the men of the village will stone that child. Right? That's just what's going to happen. Right? And all the disciples would have understood this. They all grew up in Jewish households, right? They all knew how it worked. Right? So when Jesus uh, um, stayed behind, he demonstrates this as well. He stays behind at the temple uh, when he's 12 years old. You read this story in Luke 2, Yes. In America, this means, yes, okay. So in Luke 2, you read this story. If you haven't, that's cool. Look it up later. It's cool. Uh, um, in Luke 2, Jesus is 12 years old. He goes to the temple. Mom and dad leave and head back to Nazareth with all the big traveling party. And he stays behind. They don't find him for three days, right? Three days later, they come and find him, and, and uh, which is some really interesting numerology about other things. But, but, you know, they come and find him after three days. And they said, dude, we were so worried about you. What the, what the, uh, you know, why are we, why did you treat us this way? And he reassures them and said, oh, you didn't have to worry. You know, you would have known I would be in my father's house. But the only thing you know about the next 18 years of Jesus' life, the only thing you know is that he returned to Nazareth with them and submitted to them. That's, all, that's what happened, right? That's all you know about it, Because that's what children did, right? That's all the status that they had. In the famous example of Jesus washing the disciples' feet at the, at the Last Supper, right? This is sort of Jesus' demonstration of what it means to enter the kingdom as a child, right? Because no one great washed feet. I mean, it's a terrible job, right? If, if you had a slave... And some of them did, you know, in, in first century Palestine. If you had a slave, the slave washed the feet, right, because it was such an ugly job. But if your slave was Jewish, he could refuse to wash the feet. What do you think about that, right? Because it was such a horrible job. He could refuse to wash, um, to wash the feet. But you know who couldn't refuse to wash feet? Children, right? Quite common for children in ancient Israel to wash their parents' feet, All right. So they are literally on the very bottom of the social totem pole. So when disciples hear that to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to come to it as a child, a person of the lowest status, a person completely submitted to others, that was probably a revolutionary idea for them, don't you think? I mean, and to know that that's how you define greatness, that's a whole new idea. The idea that you're going to come as the lowest person in the social order. right? They wouldn't have said, oh, I guess you've got to be playful and innocent and trusting. No, there's nothing wrong with those things. But they would have understood it to mean that they had to totally identify with their Heavenly Father and assume the lowest place in the family. And now we can understand it the same way they did, right? Okay, so it's time to cash this out. How do we respond to Jesus' command to the disciples. Yeah? I mean, the Gospels aren't just a record of Jesus' conversations with other people. They're relevant to you and me here tonight. What does it mean for us to be great? What does it mean for you to enter the kingdom of heaven as a little child? So take five minutes, and I'll ask you at the end of that, are you great? All uh, right, the suspense is horrible, but I can't figure out how to make it last any longer. So let's go. Uh, what, uh, what, do you, what, do you, what do you think? Do you, do you know someone who's great? Have you done, are you great? Who is great? Have we, have you done something that Jesus would have defined as great? Have you washed feet? Do you know someone who washes feet? What do you, talk to me. Are you great? I will cold call you. I will. I so will. Are there any business majors in the room? Any of my students? Any of my former students in the room? What will Larry do? What will Larry do? He will cold call you every day. He will though, won't he? He so will. Every student, every day. Yeah, no, if you want to sit at the back of the Olympian, you know... Uh, amphitheater and and write down things that uh, Larry says. You will not like it in my class. Uh, um, so talk to me. Can I, I want to start at the I want to start at the back table. Back table. Are you great? What do you think? Ah, well, all right. Why not though? Jesus told you how to do it. Oh right we're all a bit prodigal aren't we Yeah we can all be a bit of prodigal Yeah 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 are there things that that you know to do tomorrow that would make you great That'll do Yeah that'll do Others are, are you are you great Let's go to the front are you great Do you know anybody who's have you done anything great do you know someone who's great? Sorry? We all said no. Yeah, you all said, oh, I just, yeah, no, we'll just take the L right here. I'd. <laughs> nope, we're not great. We're not going to be. There you go. Nah, don't you want to be, though? Do you want to be great like Jesus was great? Ah, that's a nice nuance to it, right, that, that all of us, minus the grace of God, all of us are just sort of flaming, you know, heathen, right? And so in order to, in order, anything that good that comes out of us, you know, is born of his spirit. But, um, but that just sort of brings up the next question, is his spirit working in you? And is it producing greatness in you? You're going to say, yeah, I think you're saying yes. <laughs> oh, it, oh, it totally is. <laughs> is God producing great? I'll, I'll spread it. You're doing a yeoman's work. Well, you know what? That was part of the thing we could ask, right, is do you see greatness in anyone in the room? Do you see greatness in someone? Have you seen? Ah, right? Yeah, yeah. Go, go, power Fleeger. We could just start the... Should we, should we just, should we just start it? Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she is pretty great. <clears throat> are, are you, are you great? Go. Um, someone that Gotta be part of the family or it doesn't matter. That. Love that. How about in this corner? Are are anybody great? My great and she inspires me to be great. Right? You, you that mean that's your grandmother, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. your grandmother's pretty awesome. D- tell me one thing that she did that looked like Jesus washing feet. She makes Sunday lunch for us every Sunday. That's great. Well, that is pretty great, right? Because she could like do other things, couldn't she? Yeah, it's a lot of work. How many of you, how many of you are around that table? No way. She cooks for 30 people every Sunday. What? That's, that is pretty great, no? um, And we don't have to talk about anything you don't want to talk about, but how old is your grandmother? Okay. She's 60-something cooking for 30 every Sunday. That sounds like, that sounds pretty great to me. I'll call that great. Others how about how about a bit of a boys club here what, what how about this table uh, we talked about it says have you seen that have you seen something that looked like humility in in your fellows or in your family or I mean, this guy the well. right Yeah, nah, yeah. Uh, um, uh, Chandler, I would start the clap again, but I'm sore, I'm old. It's a, it's a, nah, let's just all agree that Chandler's the man. Uh, um, uh, anybody else want in on this? I don't want to drag it out. What? Yeah, go. Uh, we said it's kind of in your word, God says you are. Um, oh. oh, right. Because when we wash feet, when we humble ourselves, when we become like the lowest person, there will be voices, and those voices will say that you are not valuable, right that you are not worthy that that you know no one's going to love you, no one's going i mean that no one's going to pay you you, you know you, that you will hear voices, the world will tell you things, right. Um, But to know that, no, no, this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that this is great. That every time I do this, I'm following him in his steps of greatness. You got to, yeah, you got to be able to know who you're listening to, don't you? Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. You know, uh, now I feel compelled to talk about it. But, you know, if we go all the way back to the garden, right? Because all of our stories ultimately started in the garden, and Adam and Eve are there, and, and, and they decide to, to eat the forbidden fruit. And it's because they're promised something, right? In a way, they're promised what? Greatness, right? They're promised greatness. If you'll eat this fruit, if you'll violate God's rules, you'll be like him. You'll be great like him. When I was very small, um, my grandmother, and mom and dad as well, taught me a simple prayer at meals. Did, did you pray before your chicken today? No? Yes? Oh, snap, right? Yeah, maybe we should do it after the fact. But the, the very simple prayer that we prayed at meals was, God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Anybody, anybody else do that one? Anybody? You did that one? It wasn't just the Locke family. There were others who did that one too. It turns out There's huge theology embedded in this very simple children's prayer, right? Because God, theologians would say God has two different kinds of attributes. He has his metaphysical attributes. We'll sort of call on Flieger the theologian here. That he has metaphysical attributes, right? That he's omniscient and omnipresent and eternal, right? Those are metaphysical attributes. And those all describe God's greatness, His otherness, how he's not like a human being. But then his other set of attributes are referred to as his moral attributes. Am I I still on base? His moral attributes, right, which are that God is kind and God is loving and God is forgiving, right, God is love. When we say those things, we would say, well, those are God's goodness, right? So God has two sets of attributes, his greatness attributes and his goodness attributes. And all through the Bible, book after book after book after book, God says, I want you to be good like me, right? He says, I want you to be holy, right? I want you to be loving. I want you to be kind. I want you to be forgiving. You've learned this, right? If, you've, if you read much scripture at all, you'll run into those. God says, I want you to be good like me. But if you read that Bible from cover to cover to cover to cover to cover, God never says, I want you to be great. He never says that. He never says, oh, I want you to be eternal like me. Right? I want you to be omnipresent like me. He never says that. Never says he wants you to be great like him. That's just not it's not part of your marching orders. It's not part of our job. It's not what we're called to. Right? But Adam and Eve in the garden, they chose greatness over goodness. Right? And in that same way, there will be voices telling us what greatness is, and they'll describe it metaphysically, right? Or through other sort of social you know, through sort of social standards of greatness. All uh, right. You know that ah, you know the rich ones, the powerful ones, the you know, the strong ones, those people are great. But to know that no, this is how Jesus says we're to find greatness. And that's sort of that's sort of where it ends. A really good thought. So let me just sum up, right? Jesus is saying that to be a Christian means to completely identify with him. You can't be a part-time Christian, you can't be a, you know, a halfway Christian, right? When you come to Jesus, you come without reservations. You're part of the family. And this text warns us too that to become a Christian isn't probably the pathway to to fame and fortune, right? You know that when when you when you follow Christ, that's not. Now some Christians are placed in those positions, right? There are Christians who are famous and fortunate and powerful, but that's usually not true. And the ones that I I've met, I've, I've known some sort of rich, famous types. I'm an old finance lawyer uh, that they generally thought of it as a burden really more than some kind of you know, uh, um, self-fulfilling uh, opportunity for themselves. So Jesus is telling us that it's gonna, our greatness will be measured in humility and not in power or wealth or other cultural measures. And so in this text, he redefines greatness as being submitted to God, to taking the lowest place at the table, right, to serving in total obedience. It's great to lay down your life. As a Christian, you should recognize these themes, right? Jesus says them in like every chapter, "Blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek." Right? Jesus makes this point repeatedly throughout his ministry, the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served. Right? So I would just end with this: If there's another kind of greatness that you might be craving, repent of that today. Let's just repent of that. If you're looking at you know one of your colleagues and envying her paycheck or her office or her title or something like that. Repent of that. That's not the way of Christ. If you're fixated on, ah, you know, how can I get to be in charge of my team or how can I get the, you know, the newest truck in the parking lot or, or whatever it is, um, repent of that. Repent of that and let it go. That is not what Jesus wants you to focus on. Um, he has, you know, immeasurable things for you but that's not where we're supposed to place our focus. So if we're looking for that kind of greatness by that measure, then let's just repent of that tonight. Um, Our time grows short. I'd like to pray for you. Okay, if I pray for you? Yeah, all right, let's go. Holy Father, you are good, and everything you do is good. Father, for all of us with privileges and possessions and status and whatever we've received, Lord, we lay all of that down in front of you today. Lord, it is all yours. We don't own it. We didn't earn it. It is all a gift that we received. And we lay it in front of you, Lord, to be used however you see fit. Lord, what we want most is to be in your family. And we agree to be the small ones and the lowest in your kingdom, Lord. We join you, Lord, in washing feet. Show us the feet that need to be washed tomorrow. Show us who needs to be lifted up, who needs to have their needs met, who we can give ourselves to, Lord, in your service. And Lord, please give us full hearts and the joy of following you in that service. Lord, we repent of all the worldly things, all the misplaced loves that we've had, Lord. We repent of those. And we just agree that those are not what you have for us, that you have better. And we hold out our hands, Lord, with open hands to receive the better that you have for us. Forgive us, Lord, for all the false loves that we've harbored. Lord, we are not wise. We are just humble children. Father, please watch over your children. Lead us in the way that you've taught us. Bless us with your presence and with your truth and with your Holy Spirit to guide us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.